Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network with Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine. Today's guest is Shannon Walker. She's the founder and CEO at Whistleblower Security, Confidential Ethics, Reporting, and Case Management Solutions. As many of the listeners know, protecting those who raise concerns and also getting to the bottom of wrongdoing is a a topic that's really important to me. When I met Shannon earlier this year at Compliance Week, we started a discussion about all of these topics, which includes her path to founding and leading Whistleblower Security. I'm so excited to share it with you all. She has a unique path to working in this area, and we'll discuss that as well. I will, however, spare you all from listening to my favorite discussions that we've had about our small dogs. Can't promise they won't decide to participate in the, the podcast, but I will say that canine participation when we talk is a highlight for me. But with that, we will get back to compliance. And Shannon, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Lisa. I'm really excited to have this discussion. And hopefully the dogs don't bark while we're talking. We've already given ourselves a little bit of fair warning with that. But in any event, let's talk about how you ended up in your current role. Not only are you not a lawyer, you started in the area of peer communications and now you have founded and are leading whistleblower. I think it was a bit of a varied journey on how I got to whistleblower security and I won't bore all your listeners with the very long journey, but Basically, I I did grad school in Los Angeles with a communications focus. I did a lot of internships in the U.S., which I really enjoyed. And I think the U.S. does it so much better than Canada, where I had the opportunity to work at the U.N. and the L.A. Raiders and MTV. And it really exposed me to a lot of different organizations and, I guess, cultural organizations because they're very different. When I came back to Vancouver, I worked for a public multimedia company, and that was my first experience with public markets, which again, as a young female professional, it was very eye-opening on how things worked and perhaps how, especially in Vancouver back in the day, it was a very different environment in the public markets. It was very much more of the Wild West, but that set up a foundation for me about learning about ethics and best practices in business. And I eventually went back to my family's company and we took a company public That's the time where I was working with the auditors and Sarbanes-Oxley came into play and we realized there was an opportunity to create a new business to to provide services around ethics reporting. And I spent a year researching best practices down in the U.S. and then built our very first really elementary case management platform. And over the years, the business just evolved and now we provide our services globally And it's something that I took to because I was so passionate about it. I was passionate about the fact that we were helping make good companies be better and protecting individuals. And it gave it, it's a real sense of purpose when you're doing something that it can affect people's lives so significantly. And uh, and it's been a great experience and a great, I think, the relationship that we are able to build with our clients, because what we do for them is so important, protecting their organizations, but also protecting their employees and building this platform for everyone to come together to do the right thing. Yeah, I think, obviously, I think it's just critically important in so many components, doing the right thing and having the passion and advocacy that you do. One of the things that is particularly unique about your background is you've already alluded to that you started in communications. Mm -hmm. I think one of the challenges, even for companies who do certain things well, or 
ethics and compliance functions. And as a lawyer, one of my challenges communicating what people need to know while also making it effective and brief and dynamic. How do you think as an expert, an external expert in this, how do you think we're doing for starters and what do we do? What can we improve? I think from an observer, again, from being on the outside, I think that one of the most important things is to be simple and to be clear and to be concise. And I think that sometimes, especially when compliance departments are mostly run by lawyers, the default is to go into legal jargon. And when you're a lawyer, that's fine. But if you're a frontline staff, the translation gets lost, I think. And I think it's really just important to be very directive in the communications and to have the communications be accessible in multiple different formats and different messaging so that ultimately the message is the same, but it can come at the employees from a number of different uh, angles. And I think that the simpler is better and more accessible training and having your leaders lead by example, all the things that we always talk about tone at the top. But I, honestly, I think that the most valuable communication is the most simple communication. This is a level of behavior we expect. If you don't deliver on these behaviors, these are the consequences. Yeah. And I, as you're talking about that, I, something that I wanted to raise is the concepts and what we're trying to do is I think can be considered very simple. How we execute and make it to those next steps is where I think it becomes more complicated at times. And I think that I wanna ask you a similar question about that. What can we, what do we do well and what do we do better? And then one example I'll just mention is when you're talking, when you're going through the interview process or talking to people that your whistleblower may not want you to or may have issues, how do we balance some of those more complicated parts and make them understandable and do a good job? I think perhaps having preliminary conversations and having upfront understanding of how the process works. It's as simple as when you're implementing an ethics hotline program, really understanding how you're going to triage the reports before you even launch the solution. I think that the more consistency and clarity you have when you implement a system, the better outcomes you'll have. So if you know that you've got certain categories of complaints coming in, they're automatically triaged to the appropriate person. And that person is in functions as the gatekeeper or the holder, and then can manage the whole solution or the whole interaction with the reporter after that. I think sometimes what happens, I know with some of our clients is they launch the solution and they haven't given consideration to how they're actually gonna manage reports when they come in. And so then it's a bit of a scramble on whose point what happens after the investigation is closed? Who takes it back to the reporter? Who's reporting to the other stakeholders who are affected by whatever the issue is? I think that's something that often gets lost in the whole scenario is that a reporter comes forward, the outcome is invest or the situation's investigated. Then what do you do? How do you communicate it back to the rest of your staff? That's an important consideration that I think gets lost a lot of times. Okay, and I'm going to turn to something else, but I'm going to come back to this point a little later, I think, because the, I want to at least raise your role, because we're talking about the difference between the being the external solutions provider in terms of balancing what we need to do as an organization, plus protecting the, the whistleblower or the reporter so that they have confidence in the system. What do you think, what do you think are the responsibilities for the external provider versus the organization in this process? So it's a tiny bit nuanced, I think, but first and foremost, the responsibility of the third-party provider is to get the relevant information 
in the system so the organization can make evaluation of the next steps, whether to conduct an investigation, whether there's any kind of sense of validity to the report. But I think that the way that we look at it is our first obligation is to get the best information for our client. Our other obligation, which at times can compete with the initial obligation, is to ensure that reporter ends up in a safe space. So our, I think our mandate is to protect the whistleblower, to, to provide a safe place, an empathetic place for them. And it's interesting, one of, our, one of our mandates is our intake specialists can take as long as they want on a call. If it takes them two hours to sit through a situation with a caller, they will do that. They will calm them, provide them with comfort and a sense of warmth. And it's a really important facet to this whole situation because I think when someone finally picks up the phone to call, especially if they're picking up the phone to call, they want to have a conversation and they want to secure and they want to be in a place where they really feel the organization wants to hear from them. And then they also want to have validation that someone did hear from them. So one of the things we always counsel on is once you get a report that you initially respond to the reporter to thank them and acknowledge that you received the report. Because I think people are often anxious when they finally come forward that someone is looking at the report and is considering the information they've provided. It's a, I think they're very courageous when they finally do this. I think it's a lot easier for a reporter to make an online submission there isn't, there's still that cloak of anonymity a little bit when you make an online submission, but when you're actually talking to someone, there's a real vulnerability that comes with that. Again, the, and then the responsibility of the organization is to acknowledge the report and do their best efforts to investigate it and find some sort of resolution to it. And I also think the obligation for the organization is to, if they can, I know there's considerations to, due to privacy or other matters like that, but is to give some sort of insight or at least acknowledgement again back to the reporter that the investigation has been conducted and they may not be able to share the findings, but I think acknowledging the reporter is a really important component for the organization. It also gives credibility and legitimacy to the program. If you come and do a report and it goes out into the abyss, I think that just, again, creates more unrest and maybe cynicism about the solution itself. It's a tough balance. I, one of the things that is hard is to figure out, you know, it takes so much courage. And I say that all the time. And so does anyone I work with in our conversation, which is, you know, this takes courage for you to reach out. Now, if you to do all, give all the time people need, I completely agree and understand that. Have you had people come back and to you and basically think, we trusted you more than the organization or something else due to that approach? And have you had to handle that at all? Or Oh, that's an interesting question. We have had people reach out. I've actually had reporters reach out to me directly on LinkedIn. And I'll give you one, one story where a reporter reached out and they felt that they had been identified using the system and had concerns about that. And as, as I started to engage with this reporter, we came to realize that they were, they self-identified. It was a very small department that they worked in. And by putting the report through, and I guess they'd previously reported to their direct supervisors as well as in the past. So it was very obvious who the reporter was and they felt that they'd been exposed. And through our interaction and through them reaching out, we came to a resolution where they felt much more safe. 
But it was an interesting point in that I said to this person that our obligation is always to protect their identity. That's why we have this system in place. It's why it was created. It was to provide a confidential and safe manner of reporting. And certainly you want to counsel individuals throughout, not self-identify, but sometimes, especially if they're doing an online report, it's a little there's no way to protect them if they let the, let you know their gender or let you know exactly that they're sitting at this desk in this department, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that our, again, our commitment is to always protect them. And if they feel like if they actually reach out to me, find me on LinkedIn, I'm going to run through the process to make sure that we've done everything on our side to ensure the protection of their confidentiality and anonymity. But again, sometimes there's only so much you can do to help them. I think that's really interesting. And that shows a lot that somebody reached out to you. I know that I've seen people concerned about anonymity or even when they are, we've had, I've seen situations where when a, when a, uh, an investigation starts, I've seen the situation where the people that are being investigated are sure they know exactly who the person is yes. and turned out. And then later on, you can't say anything on that either. And I think that is a challenge too, but I think trying to talk that through with people can be really difficult, particularly if they don't, if they don't like the way it's going. And I sometimes say in an investigation, the internet has nothing on people talking in the office about, or even remotely about something they think is going wrong. So if, even if they agree with some of the process, if they don't like the result, or particularly if they're sure it's person X, but it's person Y, that can always be a challenge for when that's why I'm, I'm reflecting back to part of our conversation now with it gets there's parts of it that are simple, but parts of it can be very complicated, even saying we've investigated this and we've taken action and we have, but it's not the action someone wanted. Exactly. And this is the other problem too, is if they, if it, they think it's person X, but it's actually person Y, then you have this fallout, this ancillary fallout afterwards, because there's information you can't share it, but there's a fallout for the other employees around the situation. And again, that's one of those things that's very complicated to manage, but I think always has to be taken into consideration as you're coming to resolution on your investigations. With anonymity, and I'm talking about, I find it fascinating that somebody reached out to you directly. I can't, I wonder how often that happens, but I think it's good too, at least just people are challenging the system. But what happens if an organization, your role is separate? We've talked a little bit about that, but also in some situations, some organizations are less comfortable or familiar or understand the role or are very resistant to anonymity even after they think they want it in theory, how is that something that you all have handled or have you had to? No, we've definitely had to handle that. So in our solution, we have three options. So the reporter can be completely anonymous. They can be anonymous to their organization or they can be totally transparent. And we've had clients ask us to turn off the completely anonymous option. And we won't do that because one of the things that we do is provide this confidential place for someone to come forward. And if we can encourage reporters to self-identify or at least to self-identify to us so that if the organization wants to reach out to the person, we can do it on their behalf. But we always want to try and ensure that you provide this, again, safe space for the reporter to speak up. And if they don't want to self-identify, you can't make them. And that kind of goes against the whole essence of why the service is there. And so there has been times where we've 
um, not been able to provide the service to a potential client because they've been adamant about not having anonymous calls. And certainly in the past, when regulatory requirements didn't allow for anonymous calls, we wouldn't do that. But now that, again, the global landscape's changing and more and more countries are allowing anonymous calls, I think the whole point of having a whistleblower service is so that you can be confidential and speak up. So it's it's a tough one to migrate sometimes, but certainly we found in the past too, when we've had someone who has self-identified to ourselves, our client success manager has been able to work with them sometimes to get them into a comfortable place so they eventually self-identify to their organization. Yeah. Which is interesting because that is a very hands-on role for an intake specialist. And I've kind of two questions about that. First of all, with your intake specialist, you've talked now a few times about giving them this opportunity, getting them to a better space, which depending on who your clients are, you don't always know exactly how that plays out too. So I guess my questions on this are one, what happens when somebody is kind of your one shot with them and you know that it sounds like you're, and secondarily, how does this change if something doesn't have an intake specialist, do you engage back and forth or does it go to the organization? We're talking a lot about the phone situation, but what about online? With online, we're very hands-off. Really, then we're just the aggregator of the information and it goes right to the client and the client can try and engage through the platform. And I'm sure, Lisa, from your day-to-day life that oftentimes people come in and they dump information and then they disappear and they never come back and engage. And that's that makes your job so much more challenging because you're left with maybe inaccurate information or partial information. And I think this is why I always encourage our clients to try and encourage the use of the hotline because if you have a hotline and an intake specialist, they're going to get the who, what, when, where, why. They're going to get the first and last name of the perpetrator or the person who's supposedly causing the incident. If you have someone who's going online... They might just say, Susan is stealing my lunch. If you're in an organization with multiple offices, like Susan who? I will say, I think that when you're setting up these sort of systems, having all sorts of options is really important. Having a chat option, having the online option, having the phone option. But I do think that I maybe I'm old school. I still think the, the phone option is the best option. And I think connecting with a, with a reporter on any level is always the best. And again, I also agree, giving them lots of different ways to get in touch. And day to day, one of my favorites from years ago, which was in my old company, when we had many different at gate group, where we had many different kitchens, we got reports every so often of somebody saying, my manager discriminating by putting people on bad shifts or the wrong shifts or ignoring seniority, which is great. But then they decided not to take where, when, (laughs) what time. We knew it was the United States. There were 18,000 employees and you write someone back a few times in the system saying, where were you? Who is you? And they're never (laughs) checking again. You got to close it because we're not going to take on an investigation of every, every place in the U.S. when we have nothing other than two sentences. Obviously, you might try to sense where you think there might be more of an issue. Wait, we have a union. There's this. Have you talked to your union manager? But the, those are the ones where, you know, I, where you just have no win. And those are, in some ways, while I don't like c- closing reports, or and none of us do if we don't, something like that, or there's discrimination somewhere in shift somewhere among 18,000 employees, it's not a lot you can do. <laughs> no, exactly. And that's why maybe within the policies or the directives surrounding these types of things, it is s- s- as simple as when you go online, 
make sure you give the first and last name and the office and the department, et cetera, et cetera. Because I do think sometimes, again, people are nervous when they come forward. So they just, just download without the details that you need to do the investigation. So it's a, that's a frustrating part of this whole process. And a, a two, I think it's one, not getting all the information. And then two, just getting that initial download of information. And then when they disappear, because I, it's just, it's very frustrating. I know it's frustrating for all of our clients and the ethics officers who have to try and navigate through that. It's frustrating. And you, you always try to do all the things that you possibly can. On the other hand, absolutely what you're doing and what you're trying to protect for people is good. And it is always best to be able to connect with them somehow, but sometimes you can't. Uh, and depending on what, there's certainly allegations that will come up that will be huge, even if it's not defined, that you'll have to try to figure out some way of finding out from finance, if it's embezzlement or fraud. Is there any way I can glean something? If it's someone restated our financial figures, it's, we've got auditing companies. We've got this, we've got that. We need a little more detail as to where in the annual report or the financial statements, you might have a concern because otherwise there's, we've spent at a company and that's outside ethics and compliance. It's been a lot of time and a lot of work to make sure we're not doing that. So that it is interesting, but people, but on the other hand, it's important that people feel like they or at least do raise it, which is critical. Absolutely. It's critical. I think that just having these systems. And the other important part of this too, it doesn't matter if you're a 30 person organization or a 20,000 employee organization. I think having something like this for any level of organization is important because not people just sometimes need a safety net. And sometimes they're just not comfortable going to their direct supervisor, especially in a smaller in a smaller company when you're all friends or colleagues, it creates a lot more, I think, hesitancy to report. That just made me think of something and then it's going to come back. But I, one of the things I often say and from a communication standpoint, I talk about this a lot with managers as one of the easiest cost-free ways of publicizing it is for them to say, look, I hope you would feel comfortable coming to me or your manager or someone or HR about a concern. But if you don't, here's an option for you. I think it's the best free publicity. If somebody from the business or a leader says that, I think it really shows that we care that they do that. I think, and this is where I wanted to talk about from your intake specialist, others, is the idea of psychological safety. I think if you've got senior people in your tone from the top to say, look, hopefully you can talk to somebody, but if you can't, try this. And I just wanted to ask you about it, about how we best encourage it, both in speaking up and then in the later processes and anti-retaliation, because I think that's where we have some concerns. That's a really good question. And I think that I have a really great example of a client who invited us to all of their health and wellness seminars. And so they would have other vendors come in and it could be, they had diet, they had dietitian vendors, they had kinesiology vendors, they had career counseling vendors. And then they also, and who also did psychological work or mental health work. And then they had us. And I thought that was so interesting and in, that they invited their ethics solution provider to be part of their health and wellness seminars. And they had them, this is a Canadian client, they had them across Canada and we would go in and be able to talk to their employees directly about what the service entailed and when they should use it. And talk about creating an a environment of psychological safety. This company said, here's all of the solution providers that we are giving you access to for your mental health, for your physical health, for your emotional health at work. And they really embraced 
really the comprehensive holistic circle about protecting their employees and ensuring that they felt comfortable speaking up. So again, it was very much about having access to your direct supervisors or the director of HR, but it was also about publicizing the fact that they had this secondary network of, of support around making sure their employees were in a good place. And I think that does then right into anti-retaliation because uh, again, you're not going to feel safe if you're if you have a fear of retaliation. And I one of the things I've seen across the board, I think that the anti-retaliation policies are so legal in their it, it's just too complicated, too hard to people to easily digest. And if there was a way to really create an anti-retaliation policy in layman's terms. So that it was very clear, you will not be socially ostracized, you will not be demoted, in, in, and if you feel of any of these things are happening to you, speak up right away. But I do think that they are connected, the and the sense of retaliation. If you don't have the first, the second, the second's probably more apt to happen. Yeah. I think so, and sometimes I'm not sure whether or not we, as investigators, and in the investigative part of an ethics and compliance function is are we always the best people to both provide that or are we best trained for it even because our role is to do an investigation and try to remain unbiased. We are trying to do all of those things. Are we the people afterwards knowing what we know, having dealt with everything involved in this to also be the person that can help take care of the reporter or be objective if, for example, six months later, they do have a performance challenge that's unrelated to any of this. And we, the people to, I'm not talking about the, the ability, I'm talking about who has the right role to help with that psychological safety. And so that maybe goes back to the whole sense of having a proper triage system. And you have the investigator who is charged with making sure that the validation or the validation of the report is done and what have you. And then having maybe a cross silo team so that the secondary actions of supporting the reporter and supporting the other employees falls under HR. I also tend to think sometimes, I think of doctors and bedside manners, and doctors are there to provide the service of getting you well. How they communicate while they're doing that service sometimes can be challenging. And I've always, I actually did my, my grad thesis on, on communications between doctors and their elderly patients. And it was on appropriation and attribution theory, which I won't bore you with. But it's very interesting, the fact that if you're handling delicate situations, it's probably very important that at some point you have some communications training. Because I think, one, it'll help you engage with the reporter perhaps a little bit more intimately. But also when you're dealing with whatever the fallout is or whatever the outcomes of the investigation, if you've got some communications training, it can help you provide a more again, a safe place to relate the information and to manage the outcomes that have to happen for not only the reporter, but for all of the employees that have been affected by whatever the situation is. I think that's a great idea. I struggle with who's the best suited on that and to think about how do we best do that benefits people. Now with that, just a couple quick things. Your company is, and reading about you, you're, you're B Corp certified. And what does that mean to you as an organization and an employer, particularly you have a commitment to DE&I before it was the huge topic and ESG. And so I just wanted to get your view on that a little bit. The interesting thing about that is it could, becoming B Corp certified is very rigorous. And it took us over a year to, to go through the process. And it was 
And a really interesting one in that it validated our core values and it allowed us to really amplify them within the organization and have everyone really understand that while we're in business as a business, we're there to try and make some money. Ultimately, what we do is we're trying to make good companies better and that's our tagline, but we're committed to ensuring that our people and our clients and our community are respected and supported and acknowledged. And I think it's been a great way for our team to come together and espouse the values that we bring to our work. We're really lucky because we have a really committed team and it doesn't matter if we're in, if it's our developers or our administration team or our sales team, we all really feel what we're doing is making a difference in people's lives. And the B Corp really just helps us bring it together and have a shared mandate. And it's been a, an enlightening process. It's the best. It, it was so educational because you think a little bit about your contribution to modern slavery or your contribution to emissions. And when you get down to it, we've changed a number of practices. In the past, we used to print wallet cards and posters for all of our clients and ship them all over the world into Africa and Asia and what have you. And now we do everything electronically. We don't print anything. So we're really trying to be more cognizant of what we do and what we produce and and just and acknowledging for the staff like where our values are and what our commitments are. I think, it, and it shows it, by going through that process and becoming certified. So it shows a high level of commitment to not just understanding what the issues are, but to actually, you know, learn from them and move forward. And this is, and the last thing I want to ask you, I so am appreciative of your time, but this is also because my podcast co-host and as I call her partner compliance, Mary Shirley is one of the most fashionable people I know. Um, <laughs> I saw, and really is going to be a little jealous about this, but she, I saw when I was looking on LinkedIn that you had a fashion boutique before you started in the world of communications. <laughs> we could talk about that part for almost as long as small dogs, but one of the things I thought was interesting is starting out your professional journey as a small business owner, did that impact you now? Or do you find that it's, it's had lessons that may have been unexpected throughout the rest of your career? Oh, I think having that clothing store, especially it was in my 20s. So I was very young and, and aspirational and naive and traveling to Europe to Dubai's and being very trusting. It was like a very deep dive very quickly in learning about negotiation and ethics and not being completely trusting when you're negotiating terms and that type of thing. And it was an excellent foundation to go on to the next steps of my career journey because it, it put you right out there kind of in the midst of it, you don't have a lot of safety, you had no safety nets and you had to learn from your mistakes and pivot really quickly when you got into some tough situations with, again, fashion's very cutthroat and even for a small boutique, but because we were dealing again with suppliers on a global nature and we were traveling to New York and Paris and Milan, you, you learn very quickly on, on how to protect yourself. Probably, especially as a young woman in that field as well. Oh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> I'm sure we could talk a lot about your experience as a woman doing that earlier on in your career in that world, but I won't take any more of your day. And I just want to say thank you so much. I'm so glad that I got the opportunity to start these conversations with you. And thank you. And on behalf of Mary and me and the Compliance Podcast Network, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much, Lisa. It's been so lovely getting to know you and and I totally admire everything that you and Mary do and especially at Compliance Week, watching all of the events that you hosted and it's been great. So thanks so much. Oh, 
Thank you. And have a great day. Great. You too. Take care. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.